Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband Program here at the London School of Economics. And it's really my pleasure to introduce our speaker, Shazana Salini. Um, Shazana's uh, studied psychology, international relations, international political economy, both in Hungary and also as a postgraduate student um, at Tufts University. And more recently, she's been a visiting fellow at a number of different think tanks, including the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna, and I think the Aspen Institute you might have something to do with, and um, some others as well. In addition, though, she's been a prominent public figure in Hungary for much of the last 30 years, both as a political activist and as a parliamentarian. As some of you will know, she was a founding member and a leading figure of FIDES, the Alliance of Young Democrats, an extremely unusual and interesting organisation that played a central role in the transition to democracy in Hungary in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And she was elected in the first free elections in 1990 to Parliament, where she played a prominent role in a number of um, areas. Well, in 1994, um, after a, I don't know how to say it, after a struggle over the direction of the party, she, um, along with some others, left that organisation and the, the person who prevailed in that struggle was the current Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, who took uh, the Fidesz first in a conservative direction and then in an increasingly illiberal direction. Well, outside Parliament, Shazana then uh, worked for the Council um, of Europe for some time and also worked with a number of NGOs on issues concerning human development, um, including in North Africa. In 2014, she returned to Parliament, first as a member of the Liberal Together group and, and then as an independent politician. So you can see that she's an excellent person to try and help us to understand what is going on in Hungary. And Hungary, of course, is not just of interest to Hungarians because in some ways it's become a model for this kind of self-avowedly illiberal electoral politics. And strange though it may seem, the vehicle for that is the very organisation which helped with the transition to democracy in the first place in which our speaker played a prominent role. Well, um, is going to speak for about 45 or 50 minutes and then we should have lots of time for questions and discussion. But before she starts, can I ask you to join me in welcoming our speaker, Shazana Salini. On 31st May in 1988, I read in a newspaper that five young people established an anti-government organization. Uh, it was a very sleepy, boring, overripe communist period in 88, so I became very interested. I quickly figured out where these five people could be found and went to their next meeting, and I joined this very curious, educated group right away. The Federation of Young Democrats, Fides, was established in 1988, March, by three dozens of college students. 
within a couple of weeks, hundreds of other young people joined the organization because it was so ambitious, inspiring, and fresh in those boring historic times. The difference between Fides and other political organizations which were organized in that year was that this group of people could open up to the world in the 80s, and the late, late 80s in Hungary were relatively open, and we had already some idea how the West looked like, and our generation was more open to speak up for a more democratic country. In 1989, every day made something new and unexpected, and something really remarkable. Under the growing uh, political pressure, the communist government first introduced the right uh, to assembly and strike. On March 15, tens of thousands of people went to the street using the famous Hungarian tricolor symbol, which was banned for many years. In May, the Communist Party started to prepare to pull down the Iron Curtain, which made open a way for German and democratic communist German people to cross the border. Uh, soon later, the Hungarian opposition achieved that the martyr Prime Minister Imre Nagy, who was not buried that time, could be reburied together with other heroes of the revolution in a festive ceremony, which became a cathartic moment of the transition in Hungary. In that summer, negotiations started between the Communist Party and the Hungarian oppositional groups, and this negotiation resulted in a new constitution and free elections. Free elections finally were, were had in, in April 1990, and in these elections, uh, this young Fidesz party achieved to have a parliamentary faction with 25, 22 young people in parliament, um, all younger than 25 years old. Fidesz was a generation party with an age limit, and I was 24 years at that time. This was how our, our political started, political career started, and this was also the time how we become adults in a very short time. I would like to tell you tonight a couple of words about what I think has happened since with Fidesz Party. How is it possible that a young youth group of liberal youngsters become the first populist government uh, 30 years later? And I would like to tell a couple of words about how is it related to the, the changes in Europe and what are the, con uh, the conclusions both on Europe and the Europe on Hungary at the same time, the consequences. As from 1990, when we were in the parliament, we continued to be a radical and witty criticism of everything but Fidesz found anti-democratic or authoritarian. We represented a very pluralist, modern, liberal uh, idea about the government, and a very strong commitment to rule of law and human rights. We demanded a transparent liberal economic politics, education, and historic justice. But Fidesz was also very reasonable, and for example, stood against very strongly for witch hunt, which was sometimes uh, coming from traditional parties towards the communists. We were also nurturing the manifestations of expressions of personal and uh, 
and collective autonomy, which were very much missing during the communist times. The generational approach which Fides represented offered us a fabulous frame for expressing everything, uh, how we thought the Hungarian future should look like. We basically have to speak about ourselves. What we thought should be our future, we hope that is the same what Hungary's future should look like. While the other new political forces were usually seeking their uh, political heritage or legacy in earlier uh, conservative or liberal parties from the early part of the 20th century, Fidesz called itself as the children of divorced parents. This meant that we didn't want to follow uh, roles, role models, political role models of the past because we didn't that uh, they were good enough. They also, we also believed that they were too ancient, they were too archaic and traditional, and we just wanted to see to the future. The children of, of divorced parents was also very important for us because in Hungary, traditionally, there was a very poisoned political environment between the rural nationalistic political elite and the urban liberal political elite. And we wanted uh, very openly and, and consciously overcome of this divide. We also believed that everyone else in Hungary benefited from the transition just as we did. 1989 restored democratic sovereignty, rights, and constitutionalism in Hungary. As Jacques Rupnik, a famous a French political philosopher, said, it was a kind of belated bourgeois revolution without bourgeoisie. It was also the reconciliation of a distinct Central European identity, which was broken during the communist time between Eastern politics, Western culture, and centrist geographical position. This was also, Central Europe was very strongly composed by the Visegrad Corporation, then uh, established by Václav Havel, Lech Valenza, and Hungarian President Arpad Gönc in 1992. This was a confirmation of the Central European identity, which also expressed very strongly that the meaning of this cooperation is to joining back to Europe. However promising the year of 1989 was, the years to follow become equally perplexing. Many problems that Hungary is facing today are rooted in the challenges of those early years. I tell you a couple of things which were the early problems. First of all, uh, the economy. In the multiple transformation uh, from communist rule to democracy, the institutional setup of democracy proved to be actually the easiest job. The illness of centrally planned economy, the real reason behind the collapse of communism, has a devastating impact on society. As a result of a sudden collapse of uncompetitive communist industry and the socialist communist trade network uh, resulted that 20% uh, of the Hungarian population remained without work within a few years. And this created an unbearable insecurity for millions of families. The economic and social challenge was stunning. The second problem was capitalism. The most uh, controversial feature of the regime change was the transition into capitalism. 
many analysts believe this, is, this was actually not a democratic transformation, but from centrally planned economy to capitalism. The country entered into capitalism without capitalists in order to introduce market economy and also to eliminate the paralyzing level of sovereign debt that Hungary had that time. The government started an extensive privatization of strategic industries to foreign investors. Uh, as a result, and also other forms of uh, uh, privatization, the, the macroeconomic balance of Hungary could be settled within a couple of years. However, it had serious political con consequences because of uh, many people believed uh, that this was uh, an equal wealth accumulation and it resulted in political resentment. Third problem was the ideological polarization. Another consequential uh, characteristics of the Hungarian transition was this polarization. And probably this was because the transition, the major figures of the transition were intellectuals, because we didn't have an entrepreneurial elite that time. So the rational consideration of the transition were very much missing. So the new political elite become very uh, strongly ideologized, ideological. Uh, I think that one of the major problems in the regime change was uh, that it was so ideological so early that the former anti-communist forces, the liberals and the conservatives, did not make a grand coalition in order to run the country through the major first changes of the transition. Uh, in spite the first government was three, composed of three conservative parties, and ideological um, differences become very uh, prevalent already in the first parliamentary session. So the, the, the issue that Fidesz uh, defined itself as the child of the children of devout parents is, was very important because it was the ideological division was actually a very important uh, uh, hindering factor of, of progress. The fourth issue of the early problems were constitutional flaws. The constitution was made in 1989 in a negotiation with the Communist Party. So obviously it represented interest of actual momentous interest of various fields. So it was not a perfect constitution. It needed to be uh, corrected in a couple of years. We learned very quickly in the early 90s that this is not perfect. For example, the election law and big number of cardinal laws which needed supermajority support. Uh, I just give one example. The election law provided such majoritarian outcome that already in 1994, one party out of six in parliament uh, received an absolute majority. So we learned very early that there are the whole constitutional setup is too centralizing. However, until 2010, the political it was not able to correct, and this was because it was politically so divided. And of course, our fifth issue is um, the big obligation of Hungarian regime change is the, the lack of illustration law. Illustration, like in other countries, uh, meant that there was a bill which refrained certain political actors who participated in the communist regime 
uh, and specifically the Secret Service, could not have office uh, for a while uh, in new governments and they couldn't get high civil service uh, position. Well, this does not happen in Hungary. And this, until now, creates a kind of suspicion around the political elite, which very quickly undermined the legitimacy of the new political elite, because there was always a question mark. Well, of course, in 1990, there was a, a big change. All these new political parties went to parliament from the street. So obviously, a lot of uh, organizational development was necessary and a lot of ideological discussions to clarify who is who, who wants what uh, beyond the historic uh, revolutionary time. Uh, the Fidesz party was not an exception. Uh, a few months earlier, we were all equal. Uh, we were all fighting for the same aims. When we were in parliament, we, we got a very strong visibility. Uh, we got high status and money. While we were all very much interested in the success of the parties, internal political debates uh, started very quickly. And we learned very early that normative rules are relative and in politics you are always negotiating, you always make deals and, and uh, make some compromises. So politics is not a very normative environment. So we got into conflicts with, the, with each other very quickly and these conflicts uh, obviously went at the price of friendship and mutual trust. Well, the biggest discussions and debates we had about how to use our resources. We got money, which we did not have before, and obviously there's a lot of way how you can deal with financial resources. So there were some politicians who understood very quickly that money means power. If you aim high position, uh, you can get uh, access to resources. If you have resources, you can make better deals, so you can make even more higher, you can gain more power. Well, Viktor Orban, who was elected as a faction leader and in 1993 a party chairman, he got a good sense to using the resources, and he could make a very strong control over uh, the party membership uh, very soon. I think by nine, 1993, he was an unquestionable leader of the Federation of Young Democrats. He also had the will and the power to make pressure on other politicians to align with him. Well, we obviously had deep discussions and debates, and uh, the final rupture accorded, uh, happened in the party when we learned that the party chairman used uh, party's financial resources to run a car luxury company, rental company, and even more, this money was channelized through enterprises uh, with his family's relation. So these were a very deep uh, uh, problem of trust, obviously, and in addition to ideological debate and tactical debates, we, which we also had, the misuse of party finances and the strategic device finally irreparably tore the unity of the party away apart. In 1994, the liberal wing of Fidesz parliamentarians left the party, and uh, including myself. So I also left uh, together with a number of other colleagues of mine. 
I had to leave because I felt that my personal integrity and political beliefs uh, would be continually challenged if I stayed in the party of Viktor Orban. Well, leaving Fidesz was a bitter experience, but I could move on and eventually make a good career in the international uh, organizations where act I was one of the first Eastern European who could, who could uh, start to work. In 1995, the Federation of Young Democrats has significantly changed. They, named, they changed their name. It became Fidesz uh, Hungarian Civic Alliance. They left the Liberal International and moved to the European People's Party because it was a very opportunistic move, I believe, because there were more, uh, considerably more hope and prospects for power. Fidesz became uh, unquestionably a different party after all. Well, in 1994, the Socialist Party got back power, got back the power with an absolute majority. We understood that. Hungarians had to go through a much more complicated uh, transition experience that we hoped. Uh, they did not all necessarily believe that they have to take the burden of the transition. Uh, this was a very disappointing moment. However, the Socialist Party continued the economic and social reforms. And this reforming process was very dynamic during the 1990s and obviously was led by the strong uh, identity to Hungarians the European Union. The prospect of European Union membership was overwhelming and overarching uh, in the entire political elite and also very strong in the Hungarian society. So this was very important that the joining the European Union was so important and so identity building that it actually for many years um, masked all the internal ideological differences, including uh, a subtle growing nationalism, uh, which, which was until the mid-2000s not attracted more than 5% of the Hungarian voters. The deeply split Fidesz party first suffered a major defeat in 1994, but then made an, a remarkable success and in 1998, Viktor Orban became uh, prime minister in Hungary at the age of 35. Fidesz successfully rebranded itself as a conservative party, and obviously Fidesz was not any longer interested to balancing the, the polarized political uh, arena because they filled uh, the right side of the political arena. So I think that this was a major moment or major period when Fidesz gave up being the child, children of divorced parents. And uh, I also believe that Fidesz lowered the ceiling of its expectations uh, and uh, its ambitions uh, compared to the original aims. Fidesz was nevertheless very successful on government. They continued negotiations with the European Union. Uh, democratic institutions were working, however not perfect. Market economic, economy was uh, developing, however not very productive. But the uh, future of Hungary looked very shining in the, at the end of the 1990s. There were a couple of worrying signs 
about uh, Viktor Orban's exercising, exercise on power. For example, he cut uh, the length of the parliament sessions so that uh, limits curtailed the public discourse and the public debate and obviously parliamentarism. Uh, in addition, he, they made a lot of efforts to, to uh, influence public media and Fidesz introduced Hungary already at the end of the, at the, end of the 90s, a very polarizing American-style uh, campaign narrative, a campaign, campaigning style, which now you all know, but that time this was rather new and obviously very polarizing. But of course the biggest problem in, already in Fidesz times, the first uh, government uh, period, was corruption. I remember talking in 1999, one of my former colleague of parliamentarians, who told me that uh, finally their time has come and they are entitled to take their share. Every political forces in the early period in Hungary had some kind of feeling to special right to take their money from the public resources. It was very disappointing to see how craftily Fidesz perfected uh, the, the corruption practices which were already uh, exercised. Such corruption obviously uh, based uh, a very sad practice and also which for, for the future, for the successive years, when European Union money came uh, in much larger volume to Hungary and the prevalent corruption uh, undermined uh, democratic experience. Well, my generation, which experienced politics in 1989 and this fantastic um, years of the, of the 1990s, benefited the most of the regime change, the open, very uh, European, open, dynamic environment, and I think that my generation experienced that everything is possible and, um, and that only the sky is the limit. So I think this is something very important to understand if we speak, think about generational, that there was basically no limit in the imagination of what is possible and, and what, what can be. But this was obviously a very vain approach of what was happening. As I said, there were many, many problems. And of course, not all people uh, experienced this, but definitely the ones who took the power, who could govern, they had this, this feeling of, of incredible openness and, and, and grandiose opportunities. Well, in spite of every prediction, Fidesz lost the election in 2002 and also in 2006. Uh, however, with the small margin, so Fidesz remained a big and strong opposition party. And under Viktor Orban's leadership, Fidesz never stopped being on the offensive. So in 2010, Viktor Orban gave a very famous speech and he said, we can't be in opposition as the nation cannot be in opposition. The nation always exists, even if it's under foreign dominance. This is a very important uh, quote because it demonstrates Orban's nationalism, emerging nationalism, and also the, the hegemonic approach of him embodying himself with the nation. However, he only represented one party. Uh, 
he organized a large movement of civic, civic circles, which were bond, bonded to church organizations, local, local organizations, and a lot of small enterprises. And this became a very strong base uh, for Fidesz uh, organizational structure for, for the following years. After 2006, there was also another other radicalization turn in, in Orban's politics. And this was an, after another successive defeat in, in the political, uh, in the parliamentary election, when Or Orban physically went to the street uh, with his followers. And there was a certain moment in 2007 when Viktor Orban and the entire Fidesz faction, including the members of the European Parliament, went to the Parliament squares and uh, physically disassembled the cordon which was protecting the parliament building. This act actually meant a physical attack on parliamentarianism. Orban placed his stage to the street and went uh, to the side of the people. However, he was the strongest uh, opposition uh, member and former prime minister. So he moved towards a populist politician role. So Fidesz by that time made two big changes in its politics, from, first from liberalism to conservatives, but already in 19, 2006, he moved from conservative values towards populism. His speech in 2002 was very emblematic, enigmatic, and demonstrated his nationalistic <coughs> and hegemonic aspiration. Well, after the crisis in 2008, and after eight years of desperate waiting, Orban Victor finally won a supermajority and incredible power in 2010. There were basically three reasons behind this victory, behind this level of victory. One was obviously the economic crisis, which hit Hungary into very deep, and uh, this was because of, in many ways, irresponsible management of macroeconomic policy by previous governments. Uh, and uh, the raise of Hungarian sovereign, sovereign debt very high, so high that basically uh, questioned the results of the first 10 years uh, during the transition, the economic achievements. Po the Hungarian political elite did not have the ambition and the will to, to maintain its uh, commitment to market economy, basically. The second reason was the troublesome majoritarian profile of Hungarian um, election law. And the third reason was Orbán's very vehement and energetic nationalist populist politics, which was very prevalent um, that year. So in 19, 2010, Viktor Orbán became the first nationalist populist prime minister in Europe. Nationalist Politis, nationalist populist politics existed in Europe for a while, but it never came to power. So this is where Viktor Orban brought something new to the European scene. I think that for 20 years, Hungarians and other Central Europeans followed the, um, the European Union standards and values and principles. But as the land of plenty didn't come very quickly, these societies basically gave up and slowly turned uh, towards resentment and populist politics. So Orban's politics is characterized 
today by something he called illiberalism, but I don't like to use this term because I don't think that this politics actually is only illiberal. I think it's basically anti-democratic. He centralized the power very quickly after he got to, uh, uh, to government through changing the series of cardinal laws and the constitution. The, uh, they changed the media law, the election law, the constitution curtailed the competencies of the inst- democratic institutions of checks and balances. They nominated their loyal Orban's loyal people to basically every institution, including the Constitution Court. He put his people to the office of the president, the, uh, the, pres- the, the republic's president, the head of the judiciary, the national bank, the prosecutor general, and the media supervisory authority. So it, the institution system still exists, but it has less rights than before, and all is governed by people who are actually the closest lawyer friend of the prime minister. They changed the media law, and through personalized legislation, uh, they started to create a very strong wealth accumulation to a number of, uh, well, today we can say oligarchs. I can tell you one uh, very understandable story how it works. There is the Asma Advertisement Company. This is a company which, ha- which owns these these banners which are hanging on the electric poles. Uh, thousands of these, uh, of these banners are in Hungary, and it's a very important tool for, for political campaign. So uh, in 2015, Fidesz changed a law saying that this, these boards are uh, visually polluting uh, the city's landscape, so they banned them. So obviously the company went bankrupt within a couple of days. So another, com- another company owner bought this uh, company very cheap for basically for, for no price. And then within a couple of weeks, Fidesz changed the law again. So it was not any longer uh, vis- visual pollution. So ESMA is now a very lucrative business, but it has another owner. And this, is, this owner happened to be uh, in Orban's personal, personal uh, circle. Moreover, in the last year election, these, uh, these boards were not available for any opposition parties, but were basically blocked for the government party. But there are millions of stories like this. But it's, was it legal? It was legal, because everything is legal in Hungary. Everything is legal if you have a government with supermajority support. They can change the constitution from one day to another. So basically everything is legal, but it's obviously anti- uh, against the rule of law. So there's a huge wealth concentration. And Viktor Orban is ruling Hungary basically through uh, the domina- domination of, of financial, institutional, and intellectual resources, including a huge media dominance. So wh- how much time do I have? Fifteen minutes. Okay, great. Thank you. Well... When there is such a vast concentration and concentration of power, why the Hungarians do not revolt? This is, this is a basic question, very valid question. We also try to figure out the answer for many years, why our people are just sitting there and witnessing what, what's happening. Well, I think there are many reasons, and 
which I already mentioned, so for example, media dominance means that approximately 40% of Hungarians simply have no access of information of reality. They have no idea. They only think Viktor Orban is there. They don't know anything of any, anyone else in the country. So there is a, a, a fake news and, and the reality which is, is not reflecting the, the reality, so the media reality. And there is also the institutions which block a lot of corruption cases. There's a lot of problem of the institutional system. But there's one thing what I'd like to say a, more, a few more words because that's something very important and also relevant in Europe, uh, namely uh, Orban's nationalism. So Orban's nationalism is deeply resonating in Hungarians. Hungarian nationalism is slightly different from other nationalists, even in the Central European, Eastern European region, and this is because of a national tragedy of Trianon. Trianon is a name of a castle in Versailles. Uh, in this castle in Trianon, was, uh, the Versailles Peace Treaty was signed uh, between the Allied forces, or between the, the uh, victorious forces and the Hungarian state. So we call it the peace treaties, basically Trianon. Well, this treaty, uh, as a result of this treaty, Hungary lost two-thirds of its territory and also 57% uh, of its population. Uh, there is no nation that can easily survive such, such a trauma. Um, moreover, Trianon not only smashed the physical entity of Hungary, but it deeply hurt the, the identity and the dignity of Hungarians. Of course, there were a lot of concrete personal uh, consequences, but this, this was really a, a national trauma. So obviously, after the First World War, there was no possibility to proceed this, and during communist, there was no another reason. There was nothing to speak about. This was a complete taboo issue. Um, and of course, after 1989, there would have been an opportunity. But first of all, we didn't think that it's after so many years is so important. And also, the, this very strong identification with Europe basically turned over uh, the, the attention of the political elite. And we just didn't realize the importance of, of, of a healthy national Identity, which could not be a healthy national identity in Hungarians having such a trauma. So just think about last year in, when every European nation celebrated um, the end of the First World War uh, and also the born of the modern state, uh, starting from Britain to all the Eastern European countries, everywhere in Europe, the only country where there was no celebration but pure perplexity was hungry because we still couldn't do anything with the hundred years of tragedy. So the fact that we missed dealing with this issue in the last decades created a, a vacuum for nationalists. And Orban was the first who could really fill this uh, with, uh, in a certain way with nationalism because there was no uh, a reasonable relationship to this national tragedy. When Orban is speaking about reclaiming sovereignty, and this is what he is building his politics, he's playing with Hungarians' deep grievances. 
Trianon is the legacy uh, in the a Trianon's legacy is the is the main identity making factor in Viktor Orban's politics. He embodies himself as a heir of the proud, large, historic Hungary, and he promises to people that if they vote for him, he will protect them for any future physical, ideological, or cultural uh, trauma. This is, this is his story. This is what he is selling in Hungary. And uh, this is why he's building, on the other hand, a continual threat perception, for example, with, with coming migration. This is how Orban's nationalism is, ethno-nationalism is related to the anti-migrant politics and anti-European campaign. The idea of a strong and protective state is so, is so overwhelming in, in Fedez's politics that it openly goes against uh, the principle of rule of law. I tell you another quotation just for a, a few weeks ago. Uh, the Speaker of the House, who is also the part of this loyal circle of Viktor Orban, gave a speech, and he said the following. 150 years ago, the question was whether the Hungarian state wanted to guarantee the independence of the judges. In the future, the question is if the Hungarian judges want to guarantee the independence of the state. Independence of judges cannot be independent from the state because judiciary is part of the state. So you don't need a translator to explain what does this mean. This means if one party embodies a state, then judges are responsible for this party. This is completely unbelievable. And I think these are the things, the kind of things which I think Europe is still uh, underestimates. Well, obviously, since last year, since it has had its new supermajority victory at the parliamentary election, Fidesz's authoritarianism become even more radical and open. So that, uh, last year, the Bertelsmann Transformation Index, which measures uh, all the countries in transition, um, identified a serious backlash in Hungary in terms of separation of powers, independent judiciary, prosecution of office abuse, free and fair election, association and assembly rights, media freedom, market-based competition, the banking system, and property rights, just to mention a few. My generation of Fidesz politicians who originally politically uh, identified themselves to fighting against a communist party state in 30 years created an other party state which they rule. So Viktor Orban has a philosophy which, which goes far beyond Hungary. And I think this is something uh, important to learn about because he does have ambitions in Europe. So his philosophy is that the 2008 financial crisis demonstrated that the Western-led liberal order is not able to protect people uh, from existential threat and existential backsliding. According to him, the 2015 migration crisis demonstrated that Europe can't protect people from identity uh, threat. So thus, 
at the end of the day, liberal democracy won't function successfully uh, any longer. This is his statement. This is where he, what he believes uh, seriously. He doesn't think that the European Western liberal model can serve these people us any longer. For him, the legacy of 1989, his own use, is not a reference point to the future any longer. Well, when I returned to politics as an opposition member to Viktor Orban in 2012, it was very clear that he has a very strong and robust power, and we also were aware that, that with the ethno-nationalist uh, communication, he has a, a constituency. What was very surprising is how little the European political elite grasp the seriousness of this problem. I remember talking to a lot of diplomats uh, who always asked us, what can we do for you? And I said, well, you cannot do specifically much for us at all, but you look around at home because this, what we witness here, exists only in your country as well. It's just not on power yet. What Orban was doing was obviously a part of a larger uh, political trend, and he was always aware of that. Populist and anti-government parties have been present in the European Union countries already since the 1990s. It was only the migration crisis in 2015 and uh, the election of the Polish Prime Minister uh, Jaroslaw Kaczynski plus Brexit and then the election of Trump in big countries when the European elite understood that there is a massive trend of uh, counter-revolution and this is present everywhere in the West. Le Pen, Salvini, the German AfD, uh, the Brexiters are all a part of the nationalist populist counter movement and they all say the same. They want the repatriation of power to the nation state. This is clear. It's clear that this movement uh, is changing completely the, the European political landscape in every country to various degree. But it's also clear that this is threatening the European Union with paralyzing or even disintegration. There are a number of reasons, uh, visible reasons behind this, which would not be very new to you. One is obviously the, the economic inequality, which is a result of globalization. There is a massive literature by now about how this, this um, was created. What I'd like to point out here is, is its impact on middle class and the fact that the middle class is the basis of liberal democracy. So if the middle class is shaken, if their status is questioned, there is room for populists, and there is also a room for culture war. Another one is also something present for a while. It's a very strong cynicism and doubt and distrust against democratic institutions, notably the European Union, we are aware this trend for 15, 20 years, a declining interest in EU. Surprisingly enough, this trust is still the highest in the Central European countries, including Hungary. So there is a hope. A third one is again widely discussed. It's the, the incredible change of media 
specifically with uh, internet. It had very profound impact on politics, and not only with with uh, conspiracy theories and, and, and fake news, which you are obviously aware of, but also that there are no any more need for intermediaries uh, between politicians and the people, like journalists. Now politicians can make direct relationship to all people, and everyone can make direct relation to politicians. So this completely changed the profile of politics, and this is why basically anyone can be a successful politician today if someone has enough money. So money is an extremely important factor of politics, and there are a lot of pol uh, politicians coming up. Uh, now we have a completely new politician in, uh, in Ukraine, so that also in, in Slovakia, coming from nowhere, at least not from the political arena, just to name you some positive examples, not only the negative ones. So it's definitely an interesting uh, development. So if, if I'd like to summarize um, what I said already, behind the Hungary story, the, Hung the current Hungary story, there are obviously Hungary-specific problems, and I listed uh, many of them, basically that the regime change for many people an elitist pro project. It did not really incorporate the entire society and was not empathetic enough to the burden the transition meant for a large part of the society. They were basically the losers of regime change, which who are also the losers of globalization and the winners. So there were the obvious constitutional mistakes. There were is also the fact that the people were just simply not prepared for for, for um, capitalism, there is a lot of um, study about how badly Eastern Europeans uh, get acquainted and identify themselves with the capitalist world and how they resist it and how paternalistic they still are. Obviously, the cynicism and opportunism and I think the vanity of the new elite, which, as I said, believe that the sky's the limit and and become very opportunistic at the early stage. There is the unprocessed past of, of Trianon, and as Ivan Krastev wrote a wonderful book about recently, an exaggerated ex expectations towards European unification. So we in Eastern Europe hope that if we join, we will be there. Uh, if we join the EU, we will be like Germany. We will be like Austria. And of course, this did not happen because meanwhile, Germany and Austria moved ahead. So there is, we still didn't catch up and probably we'll never catch up. So we cannot be there. So the land of plenty didn't come, what most of the Eastern European hoped. All this created a lot of resentment and, and, and frustration and rage, which are all fertile soil for populism. We also have the urban factor. Viktor Orban, who is an extraordinary sample of this type of opportunistic Eastern European politician who lived that the sky is the limit. And he made him an unscrupulous politician who is abusing the European culture of consensus. And of course, there are the global factors which happen to support all these things in Hungary and, and elsewhere, the transition uh, the globalization and all the crisis of globalization, the conservative and traditional counter-revolution, 
I mean, you could see this with Sarah Palin coming 10 years ago. Everyone forgets that this is not new. It's not Hungary. It's not coming for Hungary. The traditionalist revolution, which is resisting that the liberal life, how we live now in the West, has origin as 15, 20 years ago. And probably this is something important we have to acknowledge, that there are the people who are more conservative, who are more traditional, share more traditional values, and for them, this liberal uh, value system is sometimes very aggressive. So this is a, it's a relevant movement, and of course we have to deal with it. And of course the internet and, and the change of, of mass democracy, uh, this was also something present everywhere. So we have a common mission, and we have a common problem, so we have common mission. It might look gloomy, uh, but the better we understand, the more we can do. So I'm not sure that my generation is the one uh, that can safeguard the life we live now in Europe, which is the best life in the world. This is not the reason that everyone wants to come here. And definitely China is not able to provide a better life uh, for its citizens uh, than what Europe can provide with, with the freedom uh, to its citizens. So this experience of being uh, so overconfident <coughs> gradually lowered the ceiling and my generation gave up step by step, year by year, all the commitment to those values that 1989 represented. This was not from one day to another. This did not happen in 2010 when Orban Victor got to power with supermajority. By that time, many of these earlier principles were compromised. Lowering the ceiling means greed and grievances and opportunism, which is very prevalent, not only in Hungary, but in most countries in Europe. So it's not my generation who is going to do this. We can, however, help. But there is a next generation coming behind us. I think this is you, basically, here, most of you. So you, I believe many of you were born after 1989. I think that for you, 1989 is a history. I think you see Europe in a different way. You see Europe with its all fantastic benefits and values and freedom. But you probably see its dilemmas and these cleavages and challenges and the lots of conflicts. So I hope and I believe you see Europe with a more realistic eye. This perception of reality can offer a foresight of wisdom for you, for the next generation, and the patience that really is needed in order to change a worldview, a mindset of a society, which we missed to do in Hungary 30 years ago. There must be a, a more serious ambition to change a culture of politics and a culture of society, which, which we missed. I think this wisdom will provide the humbleness for the next generation, for you, to make the job much better than what we did. Thank you very much.
Well, thank you very much. Um, so we've got we've got a half an hour now for questions and discussion. Um, I'll just see um, who wants to, who would like to start. Does anyone have a... Yep. Um, just wait until the microphone comes and just, if you don't mind, say who you are and where you're from, just so that we have some idea. Francesco Belcastro, University of Derby. Uh, my question is on what do you reckon that the European Union should be doing now? Ah, yes. So you told us what, what the role of the European Union was historically in relation to the problem that you discussed, but what should the EU do now? Do you see it's better to isolate... Hungary and Poland as a way to punish the governments, or do you, what, what would be your, your take on this? Thank you. So why don't you yeah, okay. address that? What should the European Union do now? Well, well, of course, this is a very important question, and I said that I find Europe and European elite basically responsible uh, uh, that Hungary could go so far. Obviously, I don't expect Europe to change uh, internal politics in Hungary. Well, there are various things to do, and I think one is that how to manage the situation now. It's very late. It's a belated action from the European institution. But, well, we have a saying, never late. uh, Better late than never. Yeah, better uh, late than than never. Better, (laughs) sorry. Uh, better late than never. <clears throat> and, uh, well, there are a number of thinking, serious thinkings, what to do. And I think what is needed is that the European Union should introduce very serious uh, uh, mat- uh, methodologies for continually and systematically check uh, the rule of law situation in each of its member countries. It should not be uh, pointed to some countries because that's proved to be uh, very uh, counterproductive. But there is a model already developed. Actually, there are many discussed. Uh, how the EU could systematically measure and uh, evaluate not only what already is done, because, for example, there were there a couple of things in Hungary while the uh, making the... Uh, Pushing the judges into pension at the age of 65, it's not a Polish invention, it's actually a Hungarian invention. It was done in 2011. It went to the European Union, uh, and then in one year later, uh, the court made a decision uh, that, uh, that this was anti uh, it was with the ageism uh, issue, which was also a bit of a nonsense. Anyway, by that time, most of the judges were replaced. So um, the the systemic uh, the systemic uh, checkup should be uh, output oriented. So it's not only the laws which must be uh, with an infringement process question, but it basically must be continually checked from what is the result. What is what is the result? And obviously, um, there's a lot lot to do. I mean, there is there are things in the pipeline. We don't know what, how far the will of the political parties will, will go because, of course, there's, it's not only Hungary at the moment which is under scrutiny. But there is more to do because this is just, um, you know, I think that, that Europe should change. The current European Union is inefficient to handle such situations. There is, they cannot manage it in Poland either. We don't know what would happen in Italy. There are bigger countries coming, which, which represent even more threat than Hungary. 
So, uh, so this whole European Union should basically revise its future. And this is a very serious job. And I think after this European Parliament election, this is what will have to come. And if it's only the nationalists who are able to uh, show up a blurry vision of your future, then, then we are in trouble. But I am pretty hopeful that by now most of the European elite is aware of this threat. And I, I expect a more intensified discourse about the future of Europe. Okay. Well, so we... Yeah, there's a... Sir, sir, there was someone there. Uh, okay, yep, this gentleman here. Sorry. Thank you very much. Paul Hudson. I retired from academic life about 15 years ago, but I still keep my research interests going. Thank you very much indeed for your talk. Incidentally, I was born before 1989, but I did used to be young once upon a time. Um, there are a couple of um, points that uh, occurred to me. You said you weren't surprised. Sorry, you, were, uh, that you, you commented that Hungary was not celebrating the end, uh, celebrating the, end, uh, the, the anniversary of the end of the Second World War. In a sense, that didn't surprise me because I conjectured that Viktor Orban would have been quite an admirer of Admiral Horty, who was the dictator during the Second World War. So that wouldn't surprise me. The second, that, that's conjecture. The other thing you um, mentioned, in fact, was um, fake news, and this had a misleading effect. Now, that also surprised me because I've met quite a few Hungarians um, all those that I know speak at least two foreign languages and they're native Hungarian. Uh, a friend of mine actually speaks um, four apart from Hungarian. She's trying to learn another now. So given their linguistic competence, which I very much admired about the Hungarians, I would have thought it was very easy to tune in, in fact, for them to BBC World Radio and other foreign language services. So I'm I, I am surprised that you think that fake news has had that mm -hmm. distorting effect. Could you uh, explain that? Okay, so two, you've got two questions there. There's one about Admiral Horty and one about yeah. fake news and linguistic competence. Right, wonderful questions. Well, the, what I said is that Hungary didn't celebrate it, the end of the First World War, and we didn't. We didn't. Well, you will see next year in 2020 at the anniversary of Trianon, there will be a lot of things happening, and I'm not sure we would be so happy by them because that would be something very tough. So we better prepare. Also a kind of counter-argument, which I'm not sure how many Hungarian politicians are doing. So, But you're right, of course. Uh, Orban, when he gave up... Um, the future orientation of Fides, and he's, he moved to the right. He obviously studied also himself looking for the past. And now there are several institutions erected in Hungary which are um, charged uh, rewriting Hungary's uh, history. And the, the period of what you mentioned between the two world war is the Horthy regime, as we call it. Uh, it's a 30-year-long uh, leadership of, of, of uh, uh, the, the leader of Hungary named Horthy. And, of course, this is um, some kind of role model for Orban, but it should not be a role model for us because, of course, that was in many ways a devastating period in Hungary's history. So, uh, yes, uh, 
we can speak um, lengthily about the remembrance and what does it serve in current politics. And we, we have a lot of uh, task and mission also in Hungary to, to keep it salient, because otherwise that can, be, can go very bad. So the linguistic competences are not so good, unfortunately, as you see with your Hungarian friends. Hungarians uh, speak the least foreign languages in Europe. 64 Hungarians, uh, 64% of Hungarians have never left the country's border. Uh, It's unbelievable. That's the lowest level in Europe. So we are a very immobile nation sitting on our strange language, being unhappy uh, that no one understands that, but we don't like to go out and speak to others, except those few ones who are here. So this is also, a, you know, it's a, it's also something that uh, Orban um, enjoys a lot, you know, because if so. But the other thing, which is more important and uh, and less funny, uh, but that's not funny either. But uh, the fake news. So the the experience, and there are some friends of mine from Hungary here who are more aware of the media situation, is that people in the world still predominantly learn news from the television. So the TV is not just 50 years ago, still today is overwhelmingly telling people what is happening in the world. Social media has changed uh, a lot of things, but just think about that if Trump's tweets are not put on TV, then few people would know of those. So actually, there, is, there are studies about uh, how in the uh, U.S. elections, uh, the tweets of politicians were repeated on TV, on, on Fox News first, and then on CNN and everything, still today. I mean, if you uh, switch uh, CNN, it tells you who's, who tweets what. So TV is the main uh, story. And then in Hungary specifically, the public TV is completely controlled uh, by the government. We even call it state TV, not public TV any longer because it doesn't serve public interest. But also the private media is very much controlled by, uh, by Orban because uh, many of his uh, lo- uh, loyal oligarchs could buy, in most of the times from government loans, uh, serious media. So there are hardly any free media, specifically television, because of course they also knew that people watch TV. Right. Yes. Just wait for the microphone. <clears throat> um, I, I visited Hungary a few years ago, and I know that Soros is a very important person in Hungary, being Hungarian himself. And I was quite dismayed to see that he has been completely discredited, and I'd like to know why. Well, of course, we were thinking a lot about this, and the anti-Soros campaign went through a certain stages in the last few years. And um, basically, I think that it's a fantastic symbolic politics. So Soros is not attacked by himself. It's not his personality or is what is problematic. He embodies uh, the enemy, the liberal, Western, rich, American, Jewish world, which Orban tries to figure out as the main uh, enemy. 
for many years. Well, this populist politicians and Orban is not the only one typically uh, build uh, up a profile, um, a black and white word. So there is them and the enemy. So this is a this is a this is a basic of populist communication. So Orban. Uh, originally fighted against communists, which was a wonderful enemy. Uh, and then he started to fight against communists uh, again because in Hungary, again, because of this unprocessed communist period, uh, this could be built up. But after a while, when he was uh, in, a, a posi- uh, in government with supermajority, after a few years, there was no more communists to blame. So he had to figure out something else. But as I said, his view is that the West is over. So he shows the West by Soros. Soros demonstrates this decadent, however influential, because still present with his money, type of West. And this is with his. And this is why he he shows uh, liberal European politicians together with Soros, and like uh, Sargentini and Gieferhofstadt and some others. And no, Juncker. This, I mean, he he says now that he's Europe. Not, he's not a liberal, though, is he? Doesn't matter mm. because, of course, now there are uh, enemies of Orbán in uh, in the Christian Democrats. So he also there are good Europeans and bad Europeans. So he. The ones who he adds to Soros are considered from his side the bad Europeans. So any of many of us, I don't know you, but many of us could actually be sit next to Soros in urban mindset. So that's that's the story behind. It's not the ninety year old respected man who actually supported Viktor Orban himself with a lot of money, not just Fidesz in the earlier times, but he went to Oxford on Soros uh, fund. Uh, fellowship, so it's more than that, and this is more harmful. I can tell you. Okay, um, can we have? Um, there was a gentleman over there for a while, but sorry. So this gentleman over here. Actually, why don't we take a few? Because we're going. Maybe if you yeah. make your answers a bit shorter yeah. too. So why don't we have you, and then this woman here in the middle, and then we'll take another couple. Thank you. Um, In 1945, Europe was essentially saved by massive uh, economic aid from America uh, after the end of the Second World War. Do you think that uh, 1989, with the collapse of communism, it was really like a closing phase of the Second World War and that the international community failed those Eastern European states by not uh, making a similar... Uh, massive uh, uh, level of assistance available to ensure that you, you overcame that traumatic economic change that fell upon Europe. And I'm thinking, uh, if you think of Germany and the problems that West Germany and East Germany had to go through to secure integration, it came at a, a massive cost to, to West Germany. So without a supranational Initiative. It's difficult to see how countries such as Hungary can can really um, uh, develop the way that we would like to see them develop. Okay, so just hold that thought. Marshall Plan for Eastern Europe. 
And this woman here, if you could say who you are and where you're from too. For, yeah. Hello. Um, so my name is Gisela and I'm originally from Bulgaria, but I have been living in London for 11 years. And just going back to what we said earlier on in terms of how some of us, or those in particular born after 1989, um, should make a change and I was just wondering what would your advice be to those born after 1989 and how we can make a change uh, I think I missed missed a bit of what you said can yeah you so speak? you suggested that like the latest generation born after 1989 oh, yeah. okay. should make um, a difference and I was just wondering what your advice will be to this generation in particular these are not small questions. If you, if you could try to make them relatively succinct, we could get another round in. Yep. Please. Yep. Hello. Uh, I'm an alumni from LSE. Uh, you spoke before about the state nationalism from, uh, from the current uh, party in government. Uh, and I was wondering what is what the nationalism wants as an end goal and what would it take to get over the scars from the First World War uh, and what it meant to, to lose the, half of the territory? All right. Have you got that one? Uh, what, so basically, what's the end what, goal of nationalism? Yeah, yeah what's the end yes. goal of nationalism yes. and what does it take to, to, to okay. get over the scars of, of the treaty that you mentioned before? So Marshall Plan, right. what should the young generation do? End yeah. goal of nationalism. Okay, um, Yes, it's a big and very valid issue, and I think that should have happened. Uh, for some reason, we never asked for it, and I don't really know why is this. And probably that was underestimated, because this all elite underestimated the, the gravity of, of the economic problems. It could not have been so big problem, because in Hungary there were a lot of reform economists at the 80s, so there were a lot of people aware of the, the problem, but somehow we, we hoped that we would manage. So, but it came up a, a few years later. But I think no one, no one also offered, you know, there was, I don't think there was a political will, and the question is whether there was the opportunity. And there are certain analysts who say that by the 1990s, the West was just not strong enough any longer. Now we know this. I'm not sure then that was so visible because that was such a, I mean, the Clinton area and everything, it was a very glorious uh, time, uh, Blair period, so it seemed, it seemed everything is, go is going well. But, okay, well, from Hungary it looked like this. We at least looked you like this. But we know now that by that time, actually, the West was not rich enough in order to offer such a support. So, yes, and it's still a problem. Um, uh, the new generation. So I think you have to learn a lot. The future is very, very different, going to be very different from now. The only thing we know on education system is that we have to prepare young people for continual change in the future. That's the only thing. No one knows how to good education looks like in these days. What we know that what we teach will not be like that in, in, in 10 years or even five years. So this, what I propose is openness all the time, readiness to adapt and change, 
and never stop learning. Actually, Viktor Orban is a politician who is the most learner politician I know, more learner politician. So if we don't often speak about his, uh, his good side, but he is, like most of the big dictators, were actually learners in, all over in their life. So you have to learn, study, keep curious, open, never stop being uh, learning. I think should the, there must be high ambitions, but if you know where the sky is, which we didn't know, then you can set more realistic aims. So I think an ambitious approach towards the future, and that, that is the one that can offer the conviction and the strengths, the personal strengths, uh, to make real change. What we saw in Hungary with this, and in, in Eastern Europe, this, this uh, opportunities, opportunism is basically the result of they gave up their ambitions. They, they're not that ambitious as they look like. So just stay ambitious, study, look for the future, and try to do something. Uh, the nationalists, well, this is a very good question, what actually they want. And because if you, you put this on, let's say, in a European table, Europe is so small if you look at the globe. The challenges are so big, coming from everywhere, from climate change to China, wherever. So it's, it's completely obvious that not only Hungary, but Britain or Germany cannot manage their, their future alone. So we are really dependent on each other. So what the hell these nationalists then want? Uh, obviously, they are all very opportunistic movements. However, there are reasonable resentment what they can play with. Well, I think there is a dead-end street. That's the problem with it. Because if, uh, let's say, Viktor Orban, I mean, I think a lot about what he wants. I don't think he wants more than to stay in power and be very, very rich. Uh, his uh, oligarchic group is now so rich that he, his uh, next-door neighbor from his village is not only the richest person in Hungary, but actually one of the 2,500 richest person of the world now by the Forbes. So they really want a lot of money because money means power. I think that's a very simple uh, operation. Now, but the problem is that he cannot... Um, you know, he can remain in power in Hungary if he's changing the law all the time. So he will obviously confront more with, with neighbors and the rule of law problem can be significant in Europe if we, we are so interconnected. So basically I think what he wants that Europe keeps him alone and doesn't bother him while he's doing whatever he wants in Hungary because his power is based in Hungary and I don't think that Orban can rule Europe because Hungary is small. However, he can remain a very influential politician, and he is already regarded as among the, the, the ten most influential European politicians. However, Hungary is, is, is really a small country. Okay. Um, I'm sort of conscious of the fact that we're very near the end here, so... So um, if, if you do have a question, just stick your paw up so I can just see. Okay. Um, look, if you can just be super quick and then you just choose which bits to answer because we have to let people leave at, at a, okay. uh, in the next four minutes. 
So just the, the, the woman who's uh, not clearly wanting to put up her hand behind, yep, you, um, and then you, and then... Hi. Um, you talked about populism in your country and how this movement have, has affected other European countries. I don't know if it's going to be a short question, but how do you think they're going to uh, affect the upcoming European elections? Okay. So the European elections, um, this gentleman? Uh, there's a coalition called um, Country for All Movement in Hungary. You, can you say why they, they are so impotent against uh, the dictatorship of Orban and his government? So a quick comment on this movement. And this, lastly, this... Hello, my name is Vasily. I'm a master's student at the European Institute here at LSE. My question is about the criteria of populism. So I wonder, uh, modern criteria of populism could be applied to Fidesz in its version of 1990s, so being anti-elitist and pro-people kind of. Sorry, did you get that question? Yeah, I wonder about the criteria of populism that are developed today. Could they be applied to the Fidesz movement back in 1990s? Ah, so can contemporary notions of populism apply 30 years ago to Fidesz? Thank you. Okay, so you can choose. <laughs> okay. Well, Fidesz was not a populist party in the sense as it is now and how we speak about populism now. It was a very reasonable and very educated, reasonable group. I mean, they are still sometimes educated. So, uh, but there were some, I think one thing that very strong political communication was always uh, kind of characteristics of Fidesz already in, in my time, which was very, very successful. But that, I think that was really different. Mm, the European actions, uh, well, I think there will be a significant uh, victory of the populist, nationalist populist parties. According to various uh, research, it will be around 30 degrees, 30 percent altogether. This is a very big number, and uh, the big issue is whether they can ally or not. If they can, they can significantly hinder serious European decisions. They won't be able to change or stop it, but they can hinder the, the for example, electing the, the um, European Commission. They can delay seriously the new financial framework, which is basically meaning that EU cannot start to work for the next seven years. They can block, they cannot block things, but they can influence it. Many analysts believe they will not be uh, able to ally because they don't like each other. And I think probably they will not come to a joint uh, faction. But I do believe they will be able to ally on strategic issues, and this will be quite harmful. So what, why not Hungarian opposition is more important? It's just very, very complicated. Uh, as I said, there was no political power in, Hung in Europe since the World, World War who had <coughs> such a str strong power than Viktor Orban. And he's changing the laws every four years, various laws, to be able to win supermajority, even less votes, plus 
changed, they really changed the entire country. And also the opposition, they, may, they support opposition in order to remain fragmented. So that's an incredible challenge. And I, I think Hungary will not be able to solve it alone. I do believe we have to do everything to change this and to resist. But just as Orban got to power as a result of the, uh, the financial crisis, so he is a beneficiary of a big change, he will lose his power in my forecast in a kind of uh, moment when, when different things would happen and when the Hungarian opposition could find a momentum, a supported momentum from elsewhere, when, when they can uh, uh, come together and go ahead and, and win. And probably Fidesz will not be um, defeated like completely. But if they lose the majority, then that's already a different setup. And that, ca that can be a, a start of a change. But I believe that Hungary's story is deeply embedded in what's happening in Europe in these days. Until this is the main trend in Europe, until we are expecting the grower, growing victory of, of populist nationalists in other countries, in big countries like Britain, the US, Italy, and France, then what can we expect from the Hungarian opposition, which is completely resourceless and lack idea? Because European liberal elite lacks an lack completely the idea how to go on. And this is the real task. And I think we all do have the mission to work on how this continent should work like in 20 years. And whoever has the idea and is able to tell this to people will be the victor of the next 15, 20 years. And this is all our, our task. And I believe that Hungarians will give their share because they know what they speak about. Okay, well look, thank you so much. Um, we've heard a lot of important points here, I think, tonight. Some of them resonating clearly way beyond the borders of Hungary, but we've also heard Hungarian-specific points, and in particular I think it's interesting reflecting on what you said, how despite the best efforts of a movement that sought to go beyond historic political cleavages, we find a situation in Hungary where those cleavages have, in a sense, reasserted themselves. And you also spoke about how the consensus around Europe has somehow fallen away and been replaced by a, a nationalist politics. And lastly, you spoke about the importance of, if you like, the generation of 1989 who have, have stepped back a bit from their aspirations, and yet you ended, inspiringly in a way, with a, a call to a new young generation to have high ambitions, but high ambitions without hubris. So I'd like you all to join me in thanking our speaker for a rich and interesting...